0: Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart. With me today is Nick Gosling, and we are going to do part one of a Libertarian Christian question and response. We actually have gotten the most number of responses from you out on social media when we said you could ask us anything and we will respond on the podcast. So we can't even do this in one episode. So we're gonna do round three this week, and in our next episode, we're gonna have round four and uh we may not even get to all of those questions. So uh, thank you for everybody who responded. And uh, so we're just going to jump in and answer some of these. Just keep in mind that, you know, sometimes we're going to be riffing here and be a little bit extemporaneous. And so we're not going to like speak on behalf of the official position of LCI and all things. So I wanted to add that little caveat there that some some of this is going to be maybe kind of our personal angle on things so we'll jump in and a lot of this is actually you've asked personal advice in in some sense like how do i you know talk about libertarianism to other people and explain to them certain concepts so those are are really great questions thank you all for responding the first question i want to talk about is from justin how do we approach other believers who are participating in national idolatry? Now, that is an interesting question because we kind of have to talk about, well, what does it mean by national idolatry? Do we mean that they idolize the nation state? Do they idolize America as, you know, you know, my country, right or wrong? Uh, is it they are, you know, just hardcore? They wear everything with flag, you know, colors and, you know, they, <laughs> they have a hat with a flag on it and they just like are always weeping when they say the national or when they hear the national national anthem and, and so forth. I mean, what does it mean to say somebody's participating in national idolatry? So how would we answer that, Nick? What are some things that you might have to say if you had a friend who you felt was at least leaning, if not just full on, almost worships the USA?
1: Yeah, well, like you said, it, it's going to depend on the individual. And so, I mean, without knowing the specific person or people in mind, uh, you know, we can only really sort of give a a general kind of advice. But, you know, things that I have found that have been useful, you know, you may want to start with discussing what does it mean that your citizenship uh, is in heaven? That verse, you know, when, when Paul is writing that letter, he's writing to one of the most patriotic and nationalistic cities in the Roman Empire and to specifically the Christians in that City and so when he says your citizenship is in heaven, uh, that is a rebuke of thinking of yourself primarily as a Roman. Now somebody may say, okay, well Paul elsewhere asserted rights tied to his Roman citizenship, and yeah, that's true. He used those things to his advantage for the sake of the gospel, but he didn't pride himself on them. He didn't build his identity around that. So to people who were nationalistic for Rome. Paul refutes that by saying, "Oh, actually your your true citizenship is in heaven." So you may want to start with that discussion and just ask, i mean i'm I'm a big fan when you're when you're dealing with polemics or trying to break down an argument of asking a lot of questions. Uh, it, it, that's a very ancient method. It's a very Socratic method. You tend to expose uh, fallacies and problems in faulty positions by asking the person to defend their position, just asking questions. Not necessarily asserting a positive argument, uh, but just asking them questions in a way that that sort of uh, shows the problems with what they're thinking. So you may ask, well, what do you think Paul means by your citizenship is in heaven? And what uh, significance would you give to the fact that he's writing this to a nationalistic audience? Uh, you know, you may also want to ask questions like, um, "What about a Christian living in an oppressive regime like North Korea? Should they have pride in in the North Korean nation state?" You know, so I, I think if you if you ask questions like that, that's not going to be the full gamut of the argument. It's a good place to start. It's a good place to get people thinking and to have some productive discussion.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the, those are really good thoughts. And one of the things that comes to mind is the potential response to that is, well, we could have a dual citizenship because, you know, when Paul says our citizenship is in heaven, well, I'm not in heaven right now. I'm on earth. And, you know, uh, we, I can maintain a dual citizenship. And as long as my citizenship in heaven, is more valuable to me or is priority to me than my say citizenship in the United States, then I'm not really committing idolatry. Now, I, I kind of have a problem with that because you can't really <laughs> you can't really say that your citizenship is in heaven and then also say that your citizenship is in the state or in a country where the state is demanding the kind of allegiance that means you'll kind of you can really put into question whether or not your allegiance is to, you know, the kingdom of God. And the other thing is, I would say, when we say the citizenship is in heaven, you know, N.T. Wright has a thing where he says, it doesn't mean that you have to, it's not the kind of thing where you have to go to heaven to get it in the same, you know, you can't say like, oh, the beer is in the fridge, you go into the fridge to drink it. No, it's something that's yours. It's something you could say that it's You have a heavenly citizenship, that your kingdom citizenship is present, is now, and there's a conflict if you want to claim that you also have a citizenship in the United States.
1: Right, and that has to do with the whole dynamic of the already and the not yet, which is a very common phrase in New Testament studies that many of our listeners may be aware of. And a lot of that was really fleshed out sort of in in the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years uh, by George Eldon Ladd's book on the New Testament, and subsequent thinkers following Ladd uh, have, have sort of carried on that idea. But it, it's pretty widely accepted now that that's a a common theme in, in the New Testament is the already and not yet dynamics of the kingdom of God. So there is a sense in which there is the fullness of the kingdom yet to come, but the kingdom is already here. It is amongst us right now. Uh, wherever christ's people are and wherever they're working the kingdom is already here in our midst and it's our job to go forward and and carry that out into the world in anticipation of the fullness of the kingdom to come
0: so our next question question number two is kind of similar here it's from crystal so the question is how do we explain that libertarianism politically is a terrific match for christianity in my part of the country it's virtually synonymous with diehard republicanism nationalism and conservatism so when you live around a lot of people who think christianity and republicanism and conservatism kind of go hand in hand better than any other ideology. You know, it is it, it, it can be a tough sell uh, to some people. So, you know, how do how do we explain that? Uh, Nick, what do you think?
1: Well, I mean, and it's not just the Republican conservative side. You know, if you go to different parts of the country, for example, if you go to uh, the Bay Area in northern California, which is probably the most liberal uh, demographic area in the United States out, outside of Washington DC proper which is like 90% progressive but if you go to those areas you know you're you're very likely to find christians uh, advancing an argument in favor of why christians should be left progressive uh, and, and and certainly if you go to certain parts of Europe where where sort of left progressive politics are are more common than they are Uh, here, at least amongst the mainstream. And as far as what sort of a consensus people in European politics tends to be um, much more favorable towards the state. At least we have some libertarian strands in the United States. But the point I'm making is it isn't necessarily uh, just a Republican conservative thing. You might run into this with uh, with with liberal Democrat progressives.
0: So the heart of the question is getting past the assumption in your community and the people, whether you're in one part of the country or the world or another, how do you get past the stigma of Christianity is just kind of inherently or default associated with that kind of left or right, you know, uh, wing politics? How do we how do we kind of bring people to, well, no, libertarianism offers a better way. That's really the heart of the question.
1: Right. And it kind of depends on who you're talking to in order to to sort of market, if you will. So if you're talking to somebody who's more of a conservative type, you know, you have to think what? Okay, what, what do they likely value? And it's going to be different for every person, but let's just take this with some broad brushes here. Uh, you know, the the order of society, you know, so you may want to discuss how spontaneous order, uh, which arises from market forces, is always going to be superior to central planning by the state. Uh, you know, the, the ironic thing is conservative type people uh, typically are very pro-war, very pro-military, uh, and yet... You know they'll they'll like quote Ronald Reagan and go oh government uh, can't do anything right well then why do you think it can do defense right or borders or immigration or anything like that if you don't trust government to run the post office why would you trust government with nuclear weapons so I mean you can use economics you can use just logic and common sense to kind of appeal to these sorts of things to show that well if you really you know you value you value order uh, you value uh, the the Rights of your family and, and community, and churches, and and all these sort of traditional uh, sort of things that you actually get that better out of out of a libertarian social order. And Hans Herman Hoppe argues that also in Democracy, the God that Failed. That's kind of one of his key arguments is that the state tends to denigrate and unravel natural social institutions. And you know, likewise, if you're talking to somebody who's a, a left progressive. Type, you know, you have to think what do what do they value? Uh, well, you know, they're if if they sort of fall into the traditional mold, they're they're probably very concerned about social welfare and the poor and all these sorts of things, and so you want to appeal to those angles, you know, and show that libertarianism is actually or and rather the, the free market, which is a component of libertarianism, uh, is 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 the best mechanism for lifting people out of poverty. So. It, it It really depends on the individual, but you want to get to know them, find out where they're coming from, ask good questions, find out what they value. And then, I mean, first of all, if what they value is intrinsically good, like helping the poor, okay, that's good. Uh, preserving the, the social cohesion of the family, yeah, that's good. Uh, so if it's something that's intrinsically good, you can discuss how libertarianism from a Christian perspective will uphold that. Now, if it's something that's intrinsically bad, like if it's, you know, outright racist or uh, anti-free speech or something, well, then you have a different problem and you need to challenge that uh, with with an ethical theological argument. But that, of course, is a more complex and difficult discussion.
0: Well, and it also brings up, you know, how do you – I don't think anybody would identify. I mean, some people do, of course, but uh, the types of people you're probably trying to reach here are not people who are like, yes, I'm a racist and I'm okay with it kind of people. Uh, They might actually hold racist... like sentiment or they might have very faulty views of what uh, immigrants are like or things like that. And it may be pretty like abhorrent to you thinking, oh, my goodness, they don't even understand, you know, the kinds of people that are coming across our borders. They have this wildly inaccurate view of that that kind of thing. And so there there might be some things that you would have to correct, if you will, with respect to like the way that they view things. But, you know, going back to the earlier question about just asking questions, find out what they value and then just kind of stick with that. And one part of the question here is that why is it a p- terrific match for Christianity? Well, I would also recommend kind of telling your story and saying, you know what, if you're already a libertarian, think about it this way. If you're already a libertarian, there's some reason why you have embraced libertarianism or leaning that way or heading that direction, however you are on your journey, while also being a Christian that somehow makes sense for you. Tell them that. They can't argue with that. They might disagree with you, but they can't argue that you've actually thought through some things nobody can argue with you if you say I've looked into the research and I did a little bit more research on immigration and it found fa- I found out that the statistics on who's actually coming to our country, whether legal or illegal, uh, and you can kind of give out lay out the statistics and the kinds of information that you found, and you know people can come back and say well that's just you know anybody can massage the numbers or whatever well at that at that point you're kind of a lost cause that person's kind of a lost cause you know and you can kind of you know maybe bring them back you know slowly or whatever but if you tell your story, how you find it compatible, why it's a terrific match for Christianity, you can do that. Now, some of the the, the basic things um, is, you know, the non-aggression principle. There's a lot of things, you know, if you go back and listen to our core values episodes, which were only a few weeks back from this episode, or if you read our core values at libertarianchristians.com slash mission, uh, you'll read our mission and core values. We kind of explain a little bit of like the, the, the major reasons why libertarianism and Christianity are compatible and kind of owning what those are for you and explaining that to other people. And it sometimes takes practice because sometimes things, you know, hit people a little bit differently. So uh, always tell your story why you find it a a terrific match for Christianity, because you know what, it's your journey and they're your friend or maybe sort of friend, depending on where they are in terms of how you're arguing, why you're arguing with them. Uh, So, you know, tell your journey with that. So again, third question here from Seth, how do I come out as a libertarian when so many of my close family members are hardcore right wing folks? I think what I just kind of answered for Crystal's question is very is going to be very applicable here, Seth, because you have to tell your story and nobody can argue that you've made a journey. They can't argue with you. They could say, well, you've gotten to the wrong facts. They could argue with where you've landed, but they can't. You know, if you tell them your story, they kind of have to listen and be like, oh, wow, he really did a lot of work on this. Yeah, they might be able to say, well, you're just reading, you know, if they're if they're right wing folks, they're going to say, oh, well, you're just reading stuff from liberals. Well, what you could do is find things from non liberals that they trust and read them. And you could say, well, you know, this person who you really like actually doesn't agree with what your position is on something. Um, There are plenty of conservatives out there. Who are have some views that are quite libertarian, and it is a hodgepodge because I mean, if they were consistent, they would be libertarians, not conservatives. Uh, but there, you would have to find them in various places. But you, you can find them. I've surprisingly seen a number of libertarian-like arguments made on National Review, uh, which as of as recently as this past year or so. So that's kind of that's kind of neat to see some things, at least a few authors, you know, shifting their views on, you know, economics and immigration and things like that. Um, Not full endorsing them at all, but just saying that like, there's arguments out there from the conservative side that are actually libertarian arguments. In terms of like coming out as a libertarian, I mean, my guess is it's not something you just be like, hey guys, I got something to share with you. I'm a libertarian in the kind of stereotypical, what do you think of when you think of, you know, coming out of a closet you are hiding in. It might just be a matter of sharing your story and saying, you know, I've given that issue a lot of thought and I think I was wrong before. And I think I actually had some wrong views about certain people or about the state of our economy. I actually thought things were really bad. And now I'm realizing that, oh, my goodness, we live in the best times ever in the world. Uh, or you, you can come up with anything that you've actually studied and learned. Uh, make it real. Uh, don't make stuff up, of course. Uh, otherwise, that conversation won't last long. Um, but just just be honest and be like, you know, I've I've looked into this. And they might turn an ear to like, oh, wow, somebody really studied it and learned it. That that may not help. Uh, you know your friends and family best. You're gonna have to tread that water in in a certain way. Nick, do you have any advice?
1: Yeah. So I mean, it it may help, or you know, you also have to be prepared for the possibility that some people just aren't gonna want to hear it. And you know, one of the things that I've had to to learn over the years, and and this isn't just in reference to theology or political philosophy, like this, this is just good advice in general. It applies to virtually anything uh, that's contentious is you can't argue with somebody who's not at least willing to listen. If somebody is totally obstinate and they're just not going to hear anything you have to say, well, then that's an ignorant person who doesn't have ears to hear. And you're not going to be able to, it doesn't matter how good your evidence is. How good of a debater you are, it's not going to matter if they've decided they're not going to listen to you. So sometimes you have to, and I'm not saying throw in the towel easily. I mean, obviously, you know, look for any angle you can to to have productive discussions. But if somebody is just totally obstinate, you know, you have to be willing to say, uh, okay, I can't reach this person and I'm turning it over to God and hoping that he will open their eyes and help them to see. But until he acts, uh, nothing can be done because they're unwilling to listen. So just good practical advice. Otherwise, you may end up beating your head against the wall thinking, oh, it's just not working. Maybe if I just change the argument a little bit. Not necessarily. You know, some people just aren't going to listen to you. Hey, folks, Norman Horn here from LCI. Would you do us a quick favor and rank us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe to us? High
0: rankings helps us get the word out there. And now let's get back to the show. You know what? You could just end those conversations where you realize it's just it's relatively hopeless to be like you know just affirm that they're obviously passionate about their views and they really want to they really want to hold tightly to them and that you're just seeking out answers and you've kind of arrived at a different place that's one way to kind of defuse the argument if it's escalated to like heated passionate you know throwing turkey bones at each other over thanksgiving dinner kind of argument uh so just Affirm people's passion about things. I mean, there's nothing wrong with having passion. Obviously, we want to direct that passion in the right way, but it's 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 certainly not wrong. And if they're actually not willing to listen to your side of it and they just keep, you know, whatever, you can be like, well, cool, you're really passionate. Uh, you know, whenever whenever we have time, someday maybe I'll get to share what I have to say. You know, something like that. Everyone's different, you're gonna receive it differently. And, you know, you can walk away with it knowing what people believe with passion and you can make better arguments, I hope, as you know, kind of turn those conversations in your mind uh in the future. But yeah, Nick right. And people who don't want to be changed aren't going to be. Maybe the people listening to your argument at say Thanksgiving dinner, that's kind of where I'm imagining all the arguments happen in the world. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there are other people listening to your argument. So take the moral high ground and don't don't give in to too much passion. So next question. This is more of a statement, but it's going to be obvious what we're what, what we're being asked to address. It's a little bit longer than just a simple question from Noah. I'd love to hear a discussion on how if the rights of the unborn can be protected in a stateless society functioning under a private legal system. Since the victim of abortion by nature cannot assert his or her own right to life or contract for protection. That's an issue I've grappled with a lot with just wondering if there is a good answer out there. I kind of preface the situation here if for those who are not anarchists or who are like new to the idea of anarchism in sort of a stateless society sense, not as in the chaos sense that a lot of people use that word for. The idea here is that in a stateless society, people would be able to and free to contract with protection agencies and other agencies that we already currently think of as only in the purview of the state. And without a state asserting the right of an unborn child to have protection, where would that come from? And that's kind of the, the essence of the question. Is that how you understand it, Nick?
1: I think so. And a friend of mine actually asked me a very similar question just quite recently, and so we had a bit of a discussion on that. Uh, you know, when we're thinking, what would a stateless, market-based social order look like? It's, in some sense, it's impossible to say exactly what it would look like. I mean, we, we don't actually know. That's part of the beauty of the market, is the market can innovate uh, and entrepreneurs and other, other people with, with capital will find ways to solve problems in a profitable
0: manner. So if we knew exactly what it would look like, that would be kind of an argument in favor of a state to implement what it would exactly look
1: like. I, I suppose it, it could be if you want to take that route from a purely utilitarian sort of perspective. But yeah, so I mean, but I can, I can speculate uh, using... Market principles, so things we know about the market from Austrian economic theory, things that that are axiomatic or can be derived from things that are axiomatic about economics. Uh, so, if we had a purely market-based contract order, you know, I'd expect that at least in some areas, some jurisdictions, uh, we'd see a greater appreciation for things like fathers' rights. So. The, the idea that we have now is sort of that you know, abortion is just a, a woman's choice. That's what the left always makes it out to be, a woman's right. Well, what, about, what about father's rights? You know, in, a, in a market-based uh, free contract society, you may have entire communities or countries uh, – well, they wouldn't be countries in the, in the state sense, but, but regions, large-scale regions that, that form around having a greater appreciation for things like uh, father's rights you you may also, I mean, really it comes down to what's in the culture. So if we think right now, like as we're recording this, there's a new nominee to the Supreme Court. Roe versus Wade is a major topic of discussion. Uh, the, the question is, is it gonna be repealed? Isn't it gonna be repealed? Okay, I, I don't know if it will. Uh, it's possible, but even if it is, it's still going to be legal in most states. And part of the reason for that is because over these past, you know, 40 some odd uh, years, since, uh, since the decision was handed down, abortion has become an accepted part of American culture and really broader Western culture. But just thinking here in the United States, Roe versus Wade specifically. So it's, it's primarily a cultural problem. The The demand is there, and as long as the demand is there, whether it's legal or illegal under a state regime, people are going to find a way to supply uh, that demand. So really what you have to do is change the culture. You have to cut into the demand. And I think in a a stateless society, if you are really slashing into the demand for abortion through ministry, through seeing people come to Christ, uh, all, all these sorts of good things. If you're cutting into the demand that way, the market will naturally sort of suppress uh, those institutions which provide those services because they won't be they won't be profitable. And that could happen in a number of ways. It could be that just nobody wants to buy that service, and so it's not a profitable business. Period. Or it could be that you know because of contracts and market pressures, people who get abortions or are abortion doctors maybe could. Uh, You know, you might have people who don't want to rent to them, who don't want to insure them, who don't want to sell to them. And so essentially, it makes it impossible for them to function if they persist in that profession. They are essentially exiled from society by the market and market pressures. And I'd recommend go back and listen to our interview with Bob Murphy, where we talked about how would society work without the state, because he dives into some of this stuff as well. So, again, that's a very broad answer. Nobody knows exactly what it would look like. But if you change the culture and change the demand for abortion, then in a stateless society, I mean, you're not going to have Planned Parenthood running around because there'd be no taxes and Planned Parenthood is a parasite that that persists on – it subsists on taxes. So if there's no taxes, there's no Planned Parenthood. And if you're cutting into the demand – you know, there won't be donors to fund alternative abortion services. There won't be people who are going out and seeking abortion services. And to the extent that there are, if the majority of the market is against that and penalizing that, then it will naturally sort of die off. And so the market ends up being the most effective mechanism uh, for for suppressing these sorts of things in a, in a cooperative and voluntary way.
0: The episode with Bob Murphy is episode 29. So if you go back and listen to episode 29 of our podcast, Bob Murphy lays out that quite a bit. In fact, it's actually a pretty lengthy episode. Uh, it's one of our longer ones as well. So there's a lot There's a lot more to, to dig in with. Uh, and I would also recommend Bob Murphy's book, Chaos Theory. So we have two more questions. Jeremiah uh, asks, is voting an act of unjustified aggression? Well, I guess we would have to ask the question, is, is voting itself aggression? And then whether or not it's unjustified. Uh, so we we know a lot of people are an audience or people who don't vote. Uh, there are people within our organization who have different views on you know whether you should vote and at what levels and and things like that. And you know we don't we don't as an organization of course endorse anybody. We don't necessarily encourage you to vote or not vote. We we have a lot of varying views on that. So uh, in one of those we have a lot of people who ask us things like this questions like well I don't vote because that's a that's part of aggression. Well Nick what do you what do you think about that? I mean are we if we go to the polls? Are we participating in the system that is based on aggression and therefore we're being unethical? How do you deal with that?
1: Well, over the years, I've sort of landed on different sides of this question at different points. Um, you know, there's, there's an analogy that's, that's often made, and I, I think I heard it from Tom Woods, but I'm sure many other people have made a similar observation. You know, you could say, well, if you're in a, let's say, a Nazi camp, Hypothetical example, back in the early nineteen forties, and for some reason they give you the chance to vote over who your taskmaster will be, and you have one guy who's bad and another guy who's really bad. Uh, are you are you committing an act of aggression by voting for the less bad guy? Uh, and I, I think that's that's a reasonable argument. So you know Woods and others. Uh, arguing in, in, in that vein would say that no, voting is not an aggressive act. And I, I think it needs to be nuanced, though. I mean, it, it again, there, there, there's a lot that could be said about this. But I think at the very least, we can say this. If you're voting with the intent to wield the power of the state against other people's peaceful actions with which you disagree, then yes, your vote is an aggressive act. And uh, I'd say it is to that extent a a sinful act. If you are voting purely defensively to unwind the powers of the state or to try to make a bad situation somewhat less bad, uh, then I would say, no, it's not an aggressive act. Now, there's still other dynamics that may come into play uh, as to whether or not you should vote at all. Uh, There there's certainly other questions that need to be answered besides just is it an aggressive act or not. But I think primarily it comes down to the intent of the individual. The intent of the individual is to wield political power through their vote in order to coerce other people. Then, yes, it's aggressive. If it's a defensive vote, it's not.
0: So if you vote for a particular candidate, if you vote for a particular candidate because you want to stick it to the rich, then that would be an act of aggression. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, that is partaking in that theft. Yeah. It is essentially – it's hiring someone to commit armed robbery on your behalf is basically what it is.
0: Yeah. Or enthusiastically voting to make sure that people across an artificially drawn line can't come and get work.
1: Right. That's also an an aggressive act. Now, I mean, there's other things that could be said on the immigration topic specifically. For example, I mean, you know, there's this is a very complex topic and and we don't have time to get into all the all the details of it here. But there are there are entities and individuals who are are essentially trying to weaponize mass migration and and basically push people across borders in order to destabilize communities that that's particularly happening in Europe and they're starting to try to bring it here. So that that is an issue. Yeah. But but you know, intrinsically state borders are artificial. What we need is a recognition of property rights. You know, your your house can be a border. Your business can be a border. Just just property that's actually acquired on a free and open market uh, has borders, quote unquote. But state borders are are arbitrary. Again, it's a very complex topic. There's a lot more that can be said. But just to throw that out there.
0: Yeah, I mean, and the, the other idea behind voting that we you know, we can get into we should probably have a whole episode on this um there's some libertarian philosophers who are kind of have done a lot of thinking directly about the ethics of voting uh but you know one thing that we could say about whether or not it's an act of aggression i something i thought of is that you know, your vote really doesn't count in one sense because you have like a one in 60 millionth of a chance of deciding the vote for, say, president or whatever. So at the very most, it's a microaggression. And, you know, I don't think many libertarians believe in a lot of microaggressions. So it's pretty much it's pretty much like, really, it's not, I'm not sure. I mean, yeah, the intent matters and so forth, but are you really causing aggression, uh, you know, I'm not sure. But it is a I'm just throwing out some thoughts there. It's just a matter of I mean, it's complicated. And I think the matter of intent is actually an important aspect of it. So our final question for this round three of libertarian Christian question and and response is from Grant. Who is the greatest libertarian Christian thinker? That's such a hard question to answer. And that's why we saved it for last on this episode, because I don't really think I could answer with like, who is the greatest? And and I realize that you're not asking us to like make a definitive historical statement that will last forever uh, on the greatest libertarian Christian thinker is. Uh, But there are a lot of good ones out there. In fact, there are a lot of libertarian thinkers who don't directly tie their libertarian arguments to their faith. That are out there. There's a lot of a lot of people that do that. But Nick, do you have any favorites or people that you kind of look up to that you're like, wow, they make a really good case for libertarianism that you respect?
1: Well, like you said, there's a lot of different people that that could be cited here, and I I certainly don't have a singular favorite. I, I draw on a lot of different thinkers and and scholars, um, but I, I guess I will make one mention, uh, not as the greatest. Libertarian Christian thinker, but just someone who's a very important libertarian Christian who's not very well known at least in 2018 uh, is is Roger Williams. And don't don't confuse this with there is a congressman I believe named Roger Williams. That's not who I'm talking about. I'm talking about Roger Williams, the founder of Rhode Island uh, back in the 18th century, who uh, was a was a very sort of proto-libertarian, a very early proto-libertarian christian thinker uh, in in colonial America. Uh, well, actually, I suppose this would have been the uh, the seventeenth century. I don't remember exactly when he when he lived. but uh, so Roger Williams was a Puritan minister in Massachusetts, uh, and this is before the founding of e- the United States. This is the colonial era. and he was a fervent defender of of freedom of conscience, and he he was against the sort of Puritan theocracy that had formed in Massachusetts on Christian theological grounds, and he was persecuted and basically uh, exiled out of Massachusetts, and he went and founded Rhode Island, uh, specifically Providence. It's named Providence because he viewed it as being from the providence of God, and for a while there, Rhode Island was sort of operating as a, as a anarchic society uh with with strong christian overtones now unfortunately later in his life roger williams kind of did a bit of a shift and became a, a, a bit more statist than he was when he was uh, younger so that's that's rather tragic but his his legacy there uh, i i think is very important and and worth looking at so uh, doug how about you what do you think about this question
0: yeah, well, you know, it's 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 kind of funny that you would that this would be asked right now because one of the most recent episodes that we've had is uh, by Mary Ruart with Mary Ruart, and I had a conversation with her about our book Healing Our World, and the book has been writ- was written in the early '90s, and it's been updated along the way, and I've read a lot of books on libertarianism. I started reading this about a little over a decade ago, um, sorry, not this book. I started reading about libertarianism, you know, a little over a decade ago, you know, it started a little bit with Ron Paul. It's, uh, went to Edmund Opitz. Uh, I listened a lot to Tom Woods. There's Christian economists that I read. And then there were all, then there were the people who I actually didn't realize were Christians or I kind of, they weren't making the Christian argument, but you know, honestly, Mary Ruart does an excellent job of connecting, um, in a very non-preachy kind of way, if I could kind of say it that way, in her book, Healing Our World. So I'm kind of enamored a little bit right now with the arguments and the way that she's making her argument in in her book uh, right now. Um, I realize that that's not sort of taking in the broad scope of libertarianism or even, as Nick kind of says, proto-libertarianism as well. There are a lot of really good uh, writers out there, Edmund Opitz, David Lipscomb, Um, You know, you have people like Larry Reed, who's a Christian. You have great arguments being made by new voices, like in the book *Call to Freedom. You have uh, John Coben, who's written books like Christian Theology and Public Policy. There's just a lot of really good uh, Christian thinkers who have written about the state, who have written about the Christian critique of the state. Uh, What I I wish were true is that I could tell you that some of the writers that are really scholarly regarding, you know, biblical theology, like people like Walter Wink or Walter Brueggemann, in that sort of sphere of Christianity, I really wish they could embrace libertarianism because they make so many really wonderful anti-empire, anti-state arguments. Alas, we have not convinced them uh, yet of uh, embracing libertarianism, but they have really good arguments that... I think, and Nick Nick also agrees with me here because we've talked about this, make a really good libertarian argument against the state. Those are some people that we uh, that we look up to that we've read. Uh, and of course, there's also people that don't even declare libertarianism and we're just like, wow, you're making our argument for us. So we are going to be back again next week with uh, more questions that you have submitted to us. Again, thank you. Some of them we we may not get to, but we'll we'll see how that goes. And thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you like today's
1: episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at You can also reach
0: us at LCI official on Twitter. And of course we are on Facebook and have an active group. You are welcome to join. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.